Kia ora, I'm Penny D, host of the 2022 Yes And Charity Stream. Yes, and I'm Jules from NZ, and I'm also the host of 2022 Yes And Charity Stream. Yes, and last year, dozens of Kiwi creators played Dungeons & Dragons for 24 hours to raise over $6,000 for charity. Yes, and this year, we're hoping to do it all over again, only bigger. On the 27th and 28th of August, we're going to be streaming live on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv slash yesandcharitystream. Yes, and we'll be aiming to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Society by playing 24 hours of the wildest, most chaotic D&D weekend. Yes, and you as the audience can donate to directly affect the game, live as it's happening. Yes, and we have some pretty sweet prizes to give away this year from some very cool sponsors. Yes, and we'll see you there to play Kiwi D&D for a great cause. Yes, and Charity Stream. (laughs) That's the name. Yes, and Charity Stream. Okay, you win. Yours truly will also be part of the Yes, and Charity Stream. As Penny and Jules just said, we'll be raising money for the Cancer Society in a 24-hour, non-stop Dungeons & Dragons livestream. If you want to watch me play as Scribe, the Kinku Monk Archaeologist, then you can come and see me from 6pm to 9pm NZST on Saturday the 27th of August. So come along, say kia and donate some money to a great cause. Even if you can't make it to see me, there'll be fun and silliness for the whole 24 hours. So join us on the Yes And charity livestream via the link in the show notes. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 94, Spates. Good on ya, mate. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, Spates was struggling against the newest threat to their dominance of the Lower South Island. Dominion Breweries had bought a number of hotels and pubs to secure a foothold in the area, and had even set up their own brewery in Timaru. So far, the Spates management had been rather reactive and somewhat passive to this challenge, but today we will see them take back the reins, and to do that, they needed a change at the highest level. On the last day of 1981, Managing Director Jack Langford retired. Appointed as his successor was Steve Mason, who, at the age of 30, was the youngest manager in Spate's history. Up until this point, he had been with the hotels division of Lion in Auckland, and had previous experience as a hotel manager, so he knew the industry very well. Unlike Langford, Mason was very hands-on with the job, and handled it with a youthly vigour. He went to visit every beer outlet in Otago and Southland, and if any of them had a complaint, he would do his utmost to get them sorted out. He was constantly analysing sales data, and if there was a drop from a particular brand or a particular outlet, he was on the case asking why that had happened and what they could do to bring those numbers back up. He held staff meetings to get a gauge on how things were tracking, suggestions on what could be improved, and how those could be implemented. 
To me, as someone who's an employee, not a manager in their job, those meetings sound extremely boring. But all in all, Mason was probably exactly the kind of guy Spates needed right now to combat the behemoth that was DB. One of the suggestions made at these meetings was to have a weekly newsletter of what was going on. This was seen as a great idea, and the first edition of Hours came out in November 1982. That's Hours, spelt O-U-R-S. The original editor left a few months after, and the mantle was taken up by a laboratory staff member since 1960, Don Gordon, who would later become Spates' archivist. A much less popular measure was that of the closure of the bar in the pump room. This bar had a bit of character, and was well regarded among the staff, since various items and memorabilia had adorned it over the years, such as a plaque that read, quote, Chisel Chin's Corner, end quote. This was on the spot where a distinctive-faced employee, Bill Manson, would often be seen leaning. It was also a matter of convenience, as that bar was located in the middle of the building, so everyone on that side of Rattray Street could easily get to it. But now, they would likely have to go all the way across to the other side of the street. On the day the bar was officially closed, a bagpiper playing a lament headed a procession of mournful employees through the underground tunnel to their new bar. Two songs were even composed in honour of the old bar, one titled The Bar With No Beer by Eddie Bray. The end of the song went, quote, But there's nothing so lonesome, morbid or drear than to work in Spates Brewery with no bar and no beer, end quote. Bray also had the honour of naming the new bar, and why the fuck he chose this name I have absolutely no idea, but it was called the bunghole. Something I briefly mentioned a few episodes ago was that the name of the brewery itself wasn't called Spates. When the founding trio set up the brewery, the building was called the City Brewery, with James Spate and Co. being the name of the company that owned it. After the NZB merger in 1923, the brewery was technically known as the Dunedin branch of New Zealand Breweries Limited, which of course was now changed to the Dunedin branch of Lion Breweries Limited. Mason, with his good eye for such things, quickly realised that a lot of Spates' appeal and marketing potential lay in its strong branding. Of course, most people probably called it the Spates Brewery anyway, but that was, at best, a nickname at this point, and in fact, Lyon had been actively trying to suppress Spates' unique identity that was much beloved by locals, to bring it more in line with the national corporate structure. Mason wasn't having a bar of this though, and he managed to convince the higher-ups at Lyon to change the name officially to... The Spates Brewery. In conjunction with this, to really drive that feeling of a local institution that Dunedinites could be proud of, Mason introduced proper, formally arranged tours of the brewery that would occur twice a week. This was also designed to show that Spates was more than just a factory that churned out beer, 
that brewing was actually a complicated and interesting process, one that had been occurring continuously for over a century on a historic site. Naturally, this took months of planning, with the visitors' reception being built on the area of the Roaring Meg from the Centennial Celebrations, which is where it still sits today. It also meant adding signs along the tour route to explain what happens at each stage of brewing, as well as various other bits and bobs to help explain not only the brewing, but also Spates's long and storied history. Tours were officially opened by the Mayor of Dunedin in June 1983, and garnered a fair amount of media attention. Just like the Centennial, the media took a particular interest in the cooperage trade, and Spates's only cooper at the time was widely interviewed, along with a number of other Spates oldies, such as R.C.B. Greenslade, who hopefully needs no introduction, Doug Cox, former head brewer, Noel Davenport, former head of sales, and Jack Langford, former general manager. There was also an advertising campaign that Spates made in Dunedin that centred around the idea of, quote, my kind of beer in my kind of town, end quote. Again, trying to drive home that Spates was a local cultural fixture to be proud of. Around the same time that this was happening, current head brewer Crawford Brown was working on something that could very well have been a world first. Working with a local electronics engineer, they developed a device to measure the volume of liquid in a tank using sonar. An ultrasonic pulse would be emitted from a device at the bottom of the tank and go up until it hit the surface of the liquid, in this case beer. When it hit the surface, the pulse would come back to the device at the bottom, which would read how long it took between emitting the pulse and when it returned, which would tell the device how full the tank was. The longer it took for the pulse to return, the more beer was in the tank, since it would have to travel further to reach the surface. The device would then output this information on an LED display, which read from 0 to 100, 0 meaning empty, and 100 meaning full. This was installed in the first cold store tank in late 1983, and was expanded to other tanks soon after. The LED displays were all put in the same spot, so the operators could see all the levels of the cold stores at the same time, without having to walk to each one. The invention was so fantastic that it was recognised by the Institute of Brewing, and Brown went to Hobart, Australia in 1986 to present a paper on the topic. In October 1983, Spates had two very important visitors come down. The two top blokes of Lion Breweries. Douglas Myers, the managing director, and Ross Sayers, the general manager. Sayers had only been in the job for a few months, but was there to announce something rather big. A new company structure whereby each brewery would be its own entity, and be managed locally, rather than from head office. In other words, all the breweries under Lion would have a lot more autonomy in how they ran themselves, their sales strategies, marketing, beers they brewed, and so on. This was a great win for Spates, and for Mason in particular, whose push for more emphasis on a local identity was credited as being a major reason for Lions Board making the change. 
A month later, the Spades Brewery was turned into a film set, and the most rugged chaps in the building were used as actors for a lion ad that would be shown in cinemas. It showed the workers as 1930s brewers, stoking the furnaces, putting casks together, wheeling sacks around, and that sort of thing. After their hard yakka, they all hopped in decade-appropriate cars to head to the pub and have a pint. The premiere was held in Dunedin and had a fair amount of fanfare, with the brewery staff turning up in formal dress. This involved them trying some Lion Brown in new bottles, as well as a bunch of slides on the beer before watching the ad. They also showed a bunch of bloopers from the filming as well. Jeff Williamson, the guy known for his silly Olympics and other antics, presented the Brown Oscars for the best acting and other such honours for a bit of a laugh. A bit later in the year, there was another, much more quiet party as Mrs. Ethel Dransfield celebrated her 100th birthday in Auckland. She was originally from Dunedin and was the daughter of Charles Greenslade, one of the original founders of Spates, and in fact, she outlived her nephew, R.C.B. Greenslade, who died on the 27th of December 1983. He was 75. A few days after that saw the arrival of the words Pride of the South on the Spates labels, where they have since remained. And, in fact, so did the first appearance of the gold medal ale logo in the form that we know it today. Early the next year, in 1984, another big change that is now rather synonymous with Spates saw its beginning. Spates decided that they would sell beer in cans, the canning itself to take place in Christchurch. The design of the can was quickly mocked up, the predominantly orange label on a dark blue background. And after a few tests, just to make sure the beer didn't taste like shit when it was in a can, the new way to drink Spates was launched in March, two months after the decision was made, so the whole thing was a very quick turnaround. March also saw a reorganisation of the sales team, and how their responsibilities were shared, which resulted in Spates' first female sales representative, Trish Willocks. Later that year, in May, the Lion Board held a meeting at Spates, the first time the board had been down there since the centennial eight years earlier. This was meant to be the beginning of a new approach for Lion Breweries, in that they would, quote, meet the people, end quote. To do that, they would personally go to the breweries, visit local pubs, hotels, and other outlets, and generally try to get a personal feel for the lay of the land. The idea was to make sure that from brewery to shopfront, everyone felt like they were being heard and their needs met. Douglas Myers even said in a newspaper interview that Spates was, quote, the example for the rest of the country, end quote. So it was clear that this whole individuality and local branding thing was something that they were thoroughly embracing. Although having more autonomy was definitely a good thing for Spates, it came with greater responsibility for the sales and profit of the brewery, particularly for Mason. Sales had been increasing, but they weren't currently where they wanted them to be. So, Mason got the staff together and split them into teams to come up with and implement cost-saving measures. 
Some of the changes that came out of this were improved electricity controllers to more efficiently use power, introduction of phase refrigeration, washing and filling bottles on alternate days, upgrading various equipment to make them more efficient, the boilers being converted to burn over-exploited orange roughy oil, closing of a cold store, a paperwork systems audit, purchasing of a small computer, and the cease of brewing of Steinlager, among many other changes. The first of these changes to be implemented was washing and filling bottles on alternate days. This meant that on any given day, much less steam was required to perform pasteurising and washing, which saved power and, as such, money. This also meant there was less packing going on each day, and after some negotiation with the union, five employees took voluntary redundancy. It was at this time in late 1984 that Ted Berenger's time at Lyon came to an end. He had been the longest-serving member on the Lion board, and his leaving meant that for the first time since the merger, the Lion board didn't have a Dunedin representative. Naturally, he vacated his office, the one they forced Greenslade to move out of after it was specially built for him, and Chief Engineer Ian Carter moved in. Up until this point, the beer destined for being canned was sent to Christchurch via a tanker on the road, but in October 1984, it started to be sent by rail in a 22,000 litre tank. Something fun that they did was paint the tanker to look like a giant spates can, which I thought was pretty cool. It was put on trucks and entered as a float in some festivals and even won a national award. Not long after this, tours had gotten so popular that it was decided they would be run daily rather than twice weekly, as they had been. One of the office staff, Sheila Wall, was given the position of full-time tour guide and tour promoter. The two years of major autonomy that Spates had enjoyed, though, was pulled back slightly in 1985, when the Lion Brewery's brewery division was split into three areas based on geography. The name does sound a bit silly, but it was because Lion had their fingers in more pies than just beer at this point, such as wine and spirits. So, Auckland and Hamilton became the northern region, Wellington, Palmerston North and Hastings became the central region, and Dunedin and Christchurch became the southern region. This also saw the reinstatement of the South Island manager position, which was given to Lyon's Australian export manager, Bill Lee. Unlike his predecessor, Lee made his base of operations in Christchurch. Thankfully, Spates still retained a fair amount of autonomy in terms of its marketing and branding, which was still going strong with a new radio jingle called We've Got the Pride of the South, being rolled out in July 1985 to promote local sports teams. It was also in this month where the production manager, Kerry McCashin, was moved to Christchurch. Well regarded in the brewery, particularly among the sports lads in the bunghole, he had been integral in overseeing the last few years of change at Spates. His replacement was current head brewer Crawford Brown. August 1985 saw new boilers being introduced into the brewery, 
and these ones were heavily automated, meaning that the two guys who operated them were no longer needed. They were given the option of either being offered new positions as fitters, or being given a redundancy package. The Stationary Engine Drivers Union, of which the two workers belonged, didn't like this at all, which resulted in a strike. Spate's first proper strike, depending on how you look at it. This was a bit of a problem for Spates. Well, actually, it was a really large problem, as it meant that until the new boilers were fully installed, there was no steam coming from the current boilers that the two blokes operated. And with no steam, that meant they couldn't wash or fill bottles, effectively halting all production. This gradually became worse and worse, until on the 10th day of the strike, the boilermen returned to work, otherwise the whole brewery was going to be deep in it. But that didn't mean the issue was resolved, and strikes took place in Auckland and Christchurch breweries in solidarity. By mid-October, one of the employees took the voluntary redundancy, with the other being kept on in a different role. As part of the agreement, Spates also agreed to pay the union dues of the employee who left, effectively paying them for a worker that didn't exist, leaving everyone happy and resolving the matter. The new boilers were actually quite good though, in that they were a lot more efficient than the old ones, which by now were 46 years old, saving Spates about $25,000 a year, or $75,000 in today's money. A new innovation in keg technology had also arrived at the brewery. Kegs called quick taps with a KW rather than a QU were coming into use. These were 50 litre kegs that could have hoses attached and detached much more easily than they had done previously. A room in the bottling plant was set up to fill these kegs specifically, outfitted with a flash pasteuriser, keg washer and a filler with the plant becoming operational in November 1985. Up until now, draft beer that filled the kegs hadn't been pasteurised because it didn't keep very well. But what was found was that pasteurised beer put into kegs now kept much better. What this meant was that since the reduction in strength four decades ago, Spates would finally be able to send their beer to the North Island, and not long after, spates became available in a few pubs in Auckland and Wellington. A few months later, the cask yard on Dowling Street, at the back of the brewery, right next to where James Spates's home would have been over a century ago, was closed down with some ceremony. This was part of a wider plan to remove all operations from that part of the property, since Part of it hadn't ever been used, and the other parts that had either weren't needed or could be moved to other spots. That land and the buildings still on it were sold in 1991. Once again, Lion Breweries went through a restructure and renaming in December 1985. The single company was split into three separate companies. The hotels division became Hancock & Co. The wines and spirits division became New Zealand Wines & Spirits. And the brewing division, which included Spates, took on the old name of New Zealand Breweries. 
These three companies were all subsidiaries of the parent company now called the Lion Corporation. This didn't change things too much in terms of the day-to-day operations, but presumably this allowed each group to act more independently while all still being linked. As far as I am aware, this structure is still in place today, though the Lion Corporation is now called Lion Nathan, and is itself owned by the Japanese company Kidden Holdings, who own a number of alcohol companies among other businesses across the world. After only about a year in the job, in June 1986, Bill Lee resigned as South Island manager, and taking up his mantle was Spates manager Steve Mason. Mason's four-year stint at Spates had seen the company go from strength to strength, and it is highly likely that without him, the brewery wouldn't exist today. He was the kind of manager that Spates needed right at the time they needed it, and clearly his talents had been recognised being promoted through the ranks. Taking his seat in the brewery manager's office was Ian McKechnie. Originally an accountant, he had joined Spates 20 years prior and had become admin manager before his ascension to the Spates throne. In July 1986, another small milestone was reached. Spates's first female brewer, Trisha Todd, had been working in the laboratory as a technician from 1976 to 82 before heading to Auckland to work as a chemist at the Auckland Brewery. She eventually made her way back to Dunedin, becoming the lab supervisor at another famous Dunedin industrial building, the Greggs Coffee Factory, at which point she was asked to come back to Spates to be a trainee brewer. Another interesting addition to the Spates team in 1987 was All Black Dean Kenny, who would later go on to be a chiropractor. 1987 saw a slight change to the labels of the bottles of Spates the characteristic gold medal ale logo being backed onto a dark blue background. Previously, this had only been used for the aluminium cans. However, the time of bottling on the Spates site was coming to an end. The government had recently been deregulating the beer industry, meaning that more beer could be imported from overseas, in particular from Australia, who could pack product for cheaper since their economy was bigger. This meant that not only did the newly re-established NZB have to contend with their rival, DB, but also overseas brewers being imported and sold for cheaper. As such, NZB had to make some hard decisions. The brewery in Palmerston North had already been closed at this point, and in September 1987 it was announced that the Waikato Brewery would follow. Soon after, they decided to close the Wellington Brewery and the bottling plant at Seaview too. Although the brewery at Spates wasn't in jeopardy of total closure, it was announced that the bottling plant would cease production. This was pretty disheartening, as they had spent millions of dollars to build it from the ashes of the fire in 1940, as well as being Hugh Spates' big dream for the brewery. Spates were given nine months' notice to allow for the closing of the plant and a plan to be made for those who would lose their jobs. In the end, some were transferred to other jobs within NZB in Auckland or Christchurch, 
Others found jobs with different companies in Dunedin, and the rest either went overseas for various reasons or retired. Thankfully, there didn't need to be any compulsory redundancies, so it sounds like the staff were at least somewhat looked after. Among the leavers was Spates's longest-serving member at the time, Norrie Lewis, who had been with them for 43 years, and was also Spates's last cooper. On the last day the bottling plant was operating, a special brew was made. This was a special German beer that apparently would hold up to the purity law in Germany, meaning no sugar was used. The recipe was thought up by plant manager Crawford Brown, and was the last beer to be bottled in the plant in its 17 years and 7 months run. Just because Spates wasn't doing the bottling didn't mean that the job no longer needed to be done though. The brewery was still making beer, and you can't sell that in mason jars. So now, Spates beer would be transported to Christchurch to be bottled and packed there. The same time the bottling plant closed also saw continuous fermentation cease to be used. It had fallen out of favour over the last few years, and instead Spate switched to batch fermentation. More change came with Ian McKinchney being transferred to Christchurch in February 1989, with Crawford Brown taking his place as brewery manager. Although this was a sad time for everyone, especially those who lost their jobs, a new era in Spate's advertising was about to begin. One that would see their profile grow even larger. The Southern Man, who you can see a depiction of in statue form at the Dunedin airport. The next couple of years went by fairly quietly, with a few more retirements and changes in staff, until in 1991, Carisbrook got a major redevelopment. Carisbrook was the local stadium in Dunedin, used to host cricket and rugby matches. Originally built in 1883, it was in need of some love, in particular floodlights that would allow it to cater for both day and night games. Spates had been contributing to community projects, and in particular sporting related projects, pretty much since its inception, so this was a natural fit, making the largest donation to Carisbrook's redevelopment to the tune of $250,000, or about half a mil today. In fact, two years before this, Spates had begun sponsoring Otago Rugby in general, with the major team sporting uniforms emblazoned with the words, Spates Rugby. Today, Spates still sponsors the Otago Rugby Union team, the Highlanders. The donation to Carisbrook, though, gave them the opportunity to do a bit of advertising that was much grander. The money itself was used to pay for the seating in one of the stands, which were coloured in such a way to spell the words spates if seen from a distance. The stand also had a variety of corporate boxes above it, one of which was held by spates for their use. The physical donation of the money was also turned into a big spectacle, with the cheque being tied to the leg of soon-to-be all-black Aaron Penne, who jumped out of the plane and parachuted into Carisbrook for the handover. After this, it was recognised that sports sponsorship had become a large part of the marketing strategy for Spates, 
And so the position of sales manager for sports was created to specifically oversee this. Carisbrook would later be sold by the Dunedin City Council in 2012, as it was replaced by the Forsyth Bar Stadium that is used today. In November 1991, Spaints achieved a well-earned certification, where the equipment and systems were accredited by the International Standards Organisation, proving that their procedures were so robust that they always output the same excellent quality product every time they did a brew. At the same time, the fleet of tankers Spaints used to transport beer were being upgraded. Or rather, they were being replaced with brand new refrigerated beer units, or RBUs. Each one had sign writing on the side to fit the Southern Man ad campaign, to bring him all over the South Island. This was expanded in February 1992, as legislation came through that allowed alcohol to be advertised on radio and TV. So, the Southern Man was taken from a static image to an actual bloke with a deep, gruff voice, the ads even winning some awards during their run. These ads showed a bunch of blokes in central Otago, riding horses, hunting, fishing, or hanging out in a backcountry pub having a cold spates at the end of a long day. They featured gruff men who spoke in deep voices, and somewhat objectified women. They personified the stereotypical southern bloke, and were quite the smash hit. You can easily find them on YouTube if you google Spates Southern Man. The next month, Spates held an open day of the brewery, in part to help promote their new beer, Extra Gold. But also, for every visitor that came, they donated a gold coin to a good cause, the Yellow-Eyed Penguin Trust who still, to this day, helped to look after one of New Zealand's most endangered native species. The open day included not just tours of the brewery, but stalls, musical entertainment in the warehouse, and of course, free bevies. In the end, 3,000 people came, meaning about $6,000 in today money was donated to the YEPT. At this time, there was also a fairly major upgrade being made to the fridge system. Up until this point, brine and water were kept cold in insulated tanks by ammonia circulating in iron coils around them. However, these coils had been active for some time and were a bit munted, so they were in very much need of replacing. So, they were taken out and replaced with an ammonia heat exchanger, which worked in a similar way to the paraflows we talked about ages ago. You know, the things that worked like fish gills. This was a much more effective way of chilling the brine, and was the first of its kind in New Zealand. By now, Spates had another All Black amongst their staff, Greg Cooper, who was part of the national team in 1986 and again in 1992. In fact, he is one of the highest point scorers in Aotearoa rugby history. His job at the brewery was well chosen, as he was one of the sports club sales reps, whose job it was to manage the relationship with the clubs that Spate sponsored. The leader of the reps, Peter Keane, had in fact recently changed position to that of sales manager specifically for the South Island Licensing Trusts. 
These entities didn't have a great relationship with NZB or Spates, ever since DB had joined up with them to establish their Timaru Brewery in 1976. Things had been gradually changing though, with NZB reps being placed in Invercargill, Gore and Oamaru to try and bring the trusts on side. The establishing of a role specifically to look after them was a major turning point in their relationship, as it allowed Spates to get a larger market share with the trusts, and they in turn got better communication from their local brewery. Towards the end of 1992, tank filler Kevin Bryson also moved up in the world. He was previously the Spates rep for one of the major unions, and as such, was quite prominent in trade union affairs. For this, he was selected National President of the Liquor Food Alliance Union. In 1993, members of this union trialled a slight variation on the 40-hour work week. Instead of doing 8 hours 5 days a week, they did 10 hours 4 days a week and got Friday off, which was a success at the time. I wasn't able to find out if this was discontinued or whether it is still the case at the brewery today. Spates Extra was a recently added beer to the brewery's range, and unfortunately it had not sold very well, part of the reason possibly being that a pale beer didn't fit the rugged, macho image of the southern man. The beer itself was based off the Steinlager recipe, So it was renamed Steinlager Blue and made part of that range, which saw it take off. Instead, Spates introduced the Old Dark and Strong Ale brands, which were a bit more in keeping with the Southern Man vibe. You may remember way back in the beginning of this series, I would frequently bring up how Spates would enter beer competitions and win them which was partly what led to the three stars on the gold medal ale, and was a large contributor to their early success. You may have also noticed that I haven't mentioned any competitions in a really long time, and that's because Spates hadn't really entered any since winning gold in 1897, nearly 100 years ago. In 1993, they decided to change that, and entered a keg of their flagship beer into the Open Draft Ale section of the Australian Beer Awards, in which it placed first. The old girl still had it. Much like this medal win had brought Spates back to their roots, so did another change closer to home. Wilson Distillers was set up on the same site as the old Well Park Brewery across town, so named for the original owner, James Wilson. In fact, this new distillery was also using part of the Spates building as a bond store to mature whiskey, which, if you recall, was also kinda how Spates got their start out of Well Park's bond store on the present site of the 1940 brewery. At this point in time, Spates was at an interesting point in their history. They had changed quite a lot over the years, but in a lot of areas, they had reverted to the way Spates was brewed back in James, Charles and William's day, albeit with some fancier technology to help them along. 
The brewery was using coal boilers to batch ferment draft beer, which was shipped in kegs to help ensure it would last the long journey. And probably most amazingly of all, it was all still done on the exact same site that the original trio bought way back in 1876. And that is the story of Spates up until the early 1990s. There is obviously a lot more that Spates has done since then, such as the upgrade in response to the 2011 Christchurch earthquake, the addition of more beer brands to their repertoire, and the rise of 0% beer. However, the cutoff for Hans is the turn of the millennium, so here is a good point to end our tale. This has been a huge amount of work, the most I've done on any topic thus far, and almost exactly one year in the making. So I really hope, I really, really hope you have enjoyed listening and learning, as it was a heap of fun to make. I would like to give a special thanks to the patrons who provided the funding to allow me to purchase all the books I needed to pull this together. One of those books was by Spates' own archivist and laboratory worker, the late Donald Gordon. His book formed the core of the research for this series, and his book is still sought after to this day as the preeminent source for the history of the brewery. If you want to see the other sources I used, you can find them on historyaltiador.com under the Source tab. I'd also like to give a special shout out to Andrew Winter, who let me pick his brains for when he did some archaeological work on the brewery in the mid-2010s, and Sarah Gallagher from the Scarfy Flats episode, who put me in touch with him. Although our story with Spates is finished, a lot of the topics we covered are subjects we will return to. Women's suffrage will be getting its own series later down the line, but there is a lot we skipped over with the Prohibition Movement, the Greymouth Beer Boycott, and the Six O'Clock Swill. Those episodes are pretty much ready to go, so that is what we will talk about next time. It will be a bit of revision of what we've already covered, but with a lot more interesting detail that I had to skip over. If you're listening to this at time of release, uh, the next one will be in three weeks' time. I'm going to take a slight break because I've been releasing these weekly, and I am pretty munted after that because I also had COVID in between as well. It also helps getting back on the original release schedule of two weeks. So if you've joined us and started listening to Hans somewhere in between these episodes, firstly, hello, welcome along for the ride, uh, but also... I can't normally get them out this fast, uh, I can only do it once every two weeks. So that's the normal release schedule that we'll be going back to, uh, well, after the next three weeks. Once we're done with the two-ish episodes on prohibition, boycotts and swills, we'll return to the pre-European Māori period for the last three topics before Aotearoa changes forever. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. 
You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairitu atu, hoki tu mai. Get on you, mate.